as I was sharing with the group at 9 o'clock, um, you know, I didn't see this video until after the message was already baked. And so my heart is blessed by, yet again, just that work of the Holy Spirit to create synergy from just a number of different uh, angles in how we hear His truth. And what I'm talking about is as we've been working through the book of Jonah and talking about exploring the depths of His grace, we're going to look at chapter 4 today. And in this final uh, episode uh, of uh, Jonah and, and the work that God wants to do through him in Nineveh, uh, we see a prophet who just from start to finish has been really tentative about taking the grace of God and sharing it with others. And then you hear Nick's testimony there in the stories of hope, how not just how the Lord has done a work in him, but I think kind of the about 60% of that story just begin to begin to spin into how that work of God in him personally produced a commitment to share that same grace with others outside of him. And so uh, that's very much um, kind of the, both the pathos and the ethos of the gospel is not just God's work in us, but also how he wants to work through us in the lives of others. And so uh, I'm going to pray for us in just a moment, uh, pray for myself, and I'm going to pray for the names represented here on the board, and we're going to get started uh, in our further exploration of the depths of God's grace. Amen? Good stuff. Uh, Father, in the name of Jesus, I come this morning... And it never gets old, um, talking to you and anticipating what new thing you're going to do. Not that I'm fascinated with new stuff in any way, but I just enjoy experiencing the promise of Scripture where you worked through your apostle Paul and said he came in among them and didn't know anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified so that their words would not, their faith would not rest in the words of men or in the excellence of men, man's wisdom, but in, Lord God, your truth. And there would be a demonstration of your spirit that people would hang their faith on. Lord God, I pray for the promise of that scripture to be just unleashed in the lives uh, of all of us today, that we would see a demonstration of your scripture in the simplicity of the gospel that would cause our faith to be further anchored in you. I pray, O oh Holy God and Father, for the names uh, represented on that board um, of people who we said are our ones, people who, Lord God, um, we've said do not know you, don't have a saving uh, knowledge of you. I pray for those folks, oh God, that you are softening their hearts by your grace, that you are uh, acquainting them, Lord God, with your grace, that they are being introduced if it's for the first time they're hearing the gospel, that, they are being, that it's being reinforced to Lord God if there have been a, a long list of other people that have planted seeds in their life and you have called us simply uh, to reap of that harvest. No matter where we are in the evangelistic or disciple-making continuum, Lord God, I just pray that those hearts are being made ready. I pray, O oh God, that not only are their hearts by your grace being made ready to receive, but that our hearts as the people who wrote their names down will be prepared to do more than pray. But Lord God, that we would also move in obedience uh, to share the grace, your grace, with those folks. I pray, Lord God, for myself and ask this morning that you would uh, work in me, allow uh, me, O oh God, to, uh, again, to present your truths as you have collected them for us in Scripture in a way that brings greater clarity, uh, Lord God, of your character and your capabilities, that brings, Lord God, greater passion, Lord God, for the service to your Son, Jesus Christ, that brings a deeper dependency 
Lord God, on your spirit, and Lord God, uh, brings uh, an even greater appreciation for your work of grace and a deeper knowledge of your gospel. Lord God, would you do all that in my life as well as in the lives of those who are going to be listening to us as we um, talk through the book of Jonah. I pray, Lord God, this also for those who are listening in the comforts of their own home or by way of some sort of uh, device. Um, Lord God, uh, would you please uh, let there be a demonstration of your spirit today. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, it is glad to see you, and I know we had a couple of hands to go up when we asked if there were those who had not been here with us before, if you were a guest. And so if you are a guest, I would uh, just encourage you to go and download the rest of the series uh, from the book of Jonah. Uh, there's a lot of meat on the bone there as I will be closing out their series today. Uh, but nonetheless, I think chapter 4 uh, has uh, some great content that can serve as a standalone, so you don't have to feel like you've missed out uh, by only hearing uh, our uh, presentation from chapter 4 this morning. Um, go ahead, and if you've got your Bibles, you'll know that we're going to be working through all 11 verses uh, this morning. And uh, one of the things that I really grew to appreciate about the story of Jonah, and this is brief four chapters, uh, is that the simplicity of the story is easily packaged as a great VBS story or a Sunday school story if you're there. Uh, but it also is latent, saturated with some very real doctrinal appreciation of the Lord's imminence, uh, His sovereignty, and some other things if you just kind of like to put on your theological thinking caps. There's just something in the story of Jonah for every single one of us. But the material of the book of Jonah isn't just there for our, uh, our, our memorization or our enjoyment of a, of a great story, and we're wondering if there really is a fish that big or if God's just kind of pulling our chain or whatever. I don't know what the story does to you, but there is so much more packaged in this story than uh, you or I may have thought before. And hopefully the Lord will graciously use us to explore um, some of that today. The book of Jonah um, occupies a very unique contribution in the Bible uh, in terms of the way it contributes to the overall, what I call the meta-narrative, the larger story of what God is doing in the Bible. Uh, I believe the Bible to be a one-piece truth because it testifies of itself that all Scripture has been inspired of God. I believe it's a one-star story, meaning that Jesus is always the main character, no matter where I find myself in that, uh, that great continuum of redemption. Um, I believe that it's a two-edged sword, and we'll explore uh, more of what that means. I believe it's a three-dimensional conversation. It talks about spiritual things, it talks about physical things, and it talks about how those things coalesce. Um, I believe that it's a four-pronged approach. We are told that the Bible is good for uh, doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction, and in righteousness. And hopefully somewhere uh, we'll be able to ring all of those bells this morning as we work through Jonah chapter 4. But back to its unique contribution to the Old Testament, it is one of the very few books that actually give us an inside look at God's intentional work amongst people outside of Israel. It's very interesting, very interesting look, uh, very few, because very, most of the prophets who are called are typically people that are gone, that God has commissioned to go and knock on Israel's door and bring them to a place of revival because they've dropped the ball or their, 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 their faith is lagging, their encouragement is low, to bring them to a place of repentance because they've walked off from the Lord and once again succumbed to idolatry. Or most of the times the prophets are coming in to the Israelites to call them to rebuild because their central place 
place of worship, the tabernacle or the temple, is in disrepair. But Jonah is a very rare role of not necessarily sharing the grace of God with his own countrymen, but with people outside of his native region. And this produces some very uh, real tension for Jonah. And it's some very, very real tension that I believe is a tension that some of us may experience and we don't even know it. And I want to talk a little bit more about that today. One of the things that I see in the book of Jonah, especially as I work through these last 11 verses in the book, is God doing something in Jonah's life to really raise his appreciation for the grace of God. Now, that might sound like a mundane thing to do, like everybody should have a high appreciation for God's grace, but I'm going to be honest with you, uh, it doesn't come naturally. The Lord has to open our eyes. He has to do some things in our lives to raise our appreciation for God's grace. Now, the reason that having our appreciation for God's grace raised uh, is so central is because it is only the things that, that we appreciate at the highest level that we are always uh, prepared to, to socialize and to share with other folks. Uh, for those of you that uh, know me and we are friends on Facebook, you probably, uh, uh, within the last couple of days, saw this post that I put out about celebrating my 11-year anniversary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Erwin chuckles because it's not the 11-year anniversary with my wife. That's actually 23 years. But this is the 11-year anniversary with my grill, the Big Green Egg. Yeah, 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 yeah. For those of you that don't know anything about the Big Green Egg, I also sat in your shoes at one point. Uh, my parents had a Big Green Egg. I did. I, I was merely a beneficiary of its great work while it sat at someone else's home. It was not mine, but I enjoyed some of what it could do right? And so we'd have a piece of meat here or there from it. I was like, man, that, that grill's pretty, that cool. It's, it's unique. It's got that shape. It's got that color. I like the way it does things. I, I, I could sign up for some of that. But it would be some years later that I would not only just be a beneficiary of the work of the Big Green Egg, but I would actually go out and make the sacrifice to purchase my own. Now, once I went out and purchased my own Big Green Egg, my appreciation for its work was exponentially increased. The first reason that my appreciation for the work of the Big Green Egg was, was exponentially increased was because I immediately felt how much it cost. I'm going to weave in and out of, you know, some gospel talk and some barbecue talk here in a minute, but I think you're going, well, we're going here, but, 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 but I immediately felt, hacked. I mean, this thing, this was serious. This was a, this was a crazy investment. I remember seeing it. I would go play golf, and, I would, uh, and, and, and on the holes that would back up to other people's homes, I would look out, and I, I was like, oh, there's a big green egg. Oh, there's a big green egg. So there was, there was regular appearances in my life in various places, but I had never personally become a full-on uh, appreciator of the grace of the egg. I had been a beneficiary. And so, uh, you know, the day came when I actually did, like I said, I took the plunge, but I didn't just purchase it and sit it out at the house. It came in and it radically changed our world. I mean, it totally reconfigured the way we as a family functioned around the dinner table, our anticipation, the way we saw grocery stores and the way we went to the meat counter with such pride. I mean, it's, it was crazy how, this, how a grill could just come into our lives and do this. And as you can see, I mean, think about this. How many of the churches in America, in, Georgia, in the world, do you think somebody would have the audacity to work a grill into a conversation about the gospel? How is this happening? It's happening because my appreciation for it is so high, I have no apprehension about sharing it with others. 
So much so should the gospel be in our lives. When I am, when I have the highest level of appreciation for the grace of God, man, my apprehension to share it is low. I don't care how weird and awkward it makes others. I don't care how weird and awkward it makes me. My appreciation is high. I'm going to talk about it in some of the most delicate places. I'm going to talk about it in the doctor's office. I'm going to talk about it at the baby shower. I'm going to talk about it in the pulpit of all the places that the Lord allows me to go. Why? Because my appreciation is high. Therefore, my apprehension to share it is low. And I believe that the book of Jonah, in particular chapter 4, calls God's people to do exactly that, to, to, to grow in our appreciation for God's grace so that it will reduce our apprehension for sharing our faith. We offer classes, the Three Circles Evangelism, taught by our dear brother uh, uh, Daniel Grissom back there. It's an awesome class. You need to go. You need to go there and get geared up, get some technical refinement in how you share your faith. But I'm also tell you what's up. You can get some of the greatest techniques of all time for talking about Jesus, but if your appreciation for God's grace is not high enough, you'll always have too much apprehension to share your gospel, to share the faith. There is a direct correlation between how much we appreciate what God did in our lives and how much apprehension we have with sharing it with others. We should listen to ourselves and some of the things that we're prepared to work into any and every conversation. A new car, another blender, a really great restaurant, a nice vacation, a, person, a special person that we met that we can't wait to introduce Think about it. Wherever it is, it is human nature that wherever my appreciation is high, my apprehension for sharing it is low. My creativity fully kicks in. I can, I can, I can on the fly manufacture ways to work it into the conversation. All I need is the most basic point of entry. When my apprehension, oh, excuse me, when my appreciation is high, my apprehension for sharing is low. Today's message is entitled The Pity Party because that's exactly what Jonah had. He had a pity party around the work that God was doing in his own life. And I do believe that the Lord wants us to have a pity party, but not the kind that Jonah had. Again, our big idea today is growing in appreciation for God's grace will reduce my apprehension for sharing my faith. And so as I look at the areas of my life where I am somewhat slow or sluggish or not as much inclined to share my faith, I'm saying, Lord, help me. Help my appreciation. There is something about you that I have not fully enjoyed that has caused me to do this. Man, I, was, I, was, I wasn't convicted until the 9 o'clock service when I looked at the number of likes and the thumbs up and the, and the, and the, and the crying, hilarious, you know, uh, 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 laughy faces that I got to my post. Because it was just this very broad, mixed audience of people that I used to work with, that I grew up with. I mean, people from all over the sphere of my life. And I begin to ask myself the question, I wonder how many of those people who now know my great affection for this grill also know my great affection for my God. Have I been equally social in this way? If they found out that I was excited about Jesus, would they be taken aback? I was convicted by that, convicted by the question. Well, today as I work through, I want you to take a look with me at just the first handful of verses because I think there is some real, um, some really good material there. Um, in the first four verses, we get a glimpse at Jonah's prayer. 
And I think the Holy Spirit is very particular in letting us know that this is what he prayed to the Lord. And listening to ourselves pray, writing down what we pray, thinking about, itemizing what we pray, I think is an important part of raising our appreciation for God's grace. Because when I look at these words, here it is, uh, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. It displeased him exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That this is, this is why I made my haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were gracious and you were merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to live, uh, uh, better for me to, to, to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? When the Scriptures give us this glimpse into the prayer life of Jonah, I believe that it provides us with a, a glimpse into our own prayer life, because I believe that God actually uses our prayers to reveal how we feel about the outsider. God uses our prayers. He doesn't just use Jonah. I believe the Lord uses our prayers to reveal how we feel about the outsider. You and I might not necessarily be uh, moved the same way that Jonah was, but, but, but when you look throughout the book of Jonah, throughout the book, and just in chapter 11, there are 11 verses but seven distinct emotional swings where Jonah is extremely displeased and then angry with the Lord. Then he goes to a place of being so angry that he's depressed and asks that the Lord would kill him. Major, major emotional swings. And then the book tells us in latter verses that not only is he uh, uh, extremely uh, depressed that the Lord would take his life, then it says, well, then he, he, sat, over, he sat east of the city uh, sitting in a booth, and the Lord provided him with a cover from the sun. And it says, and he was really excited. And then it goes from there to show that once the, the worm ate up the plant, that he got really low again and asked the Lord to kill him. Seven distinct emotional swings found in the text. He's all over the place. Our emotions are important. They are not secondary. They are actually part of us having been made in the image of God because we are called to actually match emotions with the Lord. Our priorities are reflected in the things that we also get upset about or the things that we take joy in when it comes to the work of the Lord. This is why the Bible goes so far as to say that in Christ, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. He's been tempted in all points as we are. So being able to match emotions with the Lord is a critical part of us growing in our appreciation for His grace. But when I look at my prayer life, what great emotional swings do I see? What, what great moments of joy and dissatisfaction are re reflected in my voice or in my, or in my request to the Lord? We also see that Jonah here has a very selfish view of salvation. Lord, isn't this what I thought you were going to do? Isn't this what I said you would do while I was yet in my own country? These are crucial words because it would have been, uh, it's obviously uncommon for Jonah. Jonah also recognized the uniqueness of his role. Why am I being, why am I not sharing your grace and your goodness with your covenant people, my brothers and sisters, nationally? Why am I not preaching like this to the home team? After all, we're your people in the earth. Let's just be honest, y'all. When you read the Old Testament, it does seem very Israel-centric. It seems as if they get all the goodies in some way. And while it is God's plan that Israel will be the objects of His grace, the objective is to get the grace of God to the whole world, as is evidenced by the, by the Abrahamic covenant. Three major principles of Abrahamic covenant are this. You will be a people who will have your own piece of land. 
And so Israel fights to gain it and fights to maintain it. You as a people will have great prowess amongst the nations. You will be my people, and they will know that I am your God. But why? Would they be for exclusivity? No, actually so that others would see an example of what it means to have a relationship with this great God. Just to let you know that this is not something that I've made up, think about all the great stories of the Bible where when God is doing something awesome, it always has this evangelistic tone where there are other people from other nations who are witnessing who God is and choose the winning team. Whether it was the three Hebrew boys in Babylon, you read there was another in the fire. We just sang about that. Think about this. Throughout that story, while we were thinking about the three Hebrew boys, God was also breaking down barriers to the truth in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. So God has always shown us that while he may have been using Israel as the example, he always had this desire to expose the whole world to his great mercy. They may have been the object, but the objective was always bigger than them. He promised Abraham that that through him, all families of the earth would be blessed. It was always part of the plan when he recruited Israel as his own. And so hopefully this challenges and changes the way we view the Bible when we think that there's stuff in there that is, there are things in there that are only relevant to the promises of Israel, but recognize that this is a platform where God is saying, this is an example of how I want to relate to those who are mine. But Jonah didn't see that larger view of God's grace. He prayed like I pray in many cases. When I do an analysis of my own prayer life, I think about how much time I spend praying for the outsider because my prayer reveals how I feel about the outsider. I have no shame in admitting that I pray earnestly for my wife. I pray earnestly for my teenagers. I pray earnestly for my father. I pray earnestly for the members of my household. I pray earnestly for my church. I pray earnestly for my, 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 my. A lot of stuff that has the word my in front of it. But I cannot honestly say that the same energy goes to praying for them, people outside of the my. Why is that? It's just how we're built. And so look at our prayer lives and, 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 and make an analysis. Maybe you have already gotten there. I'm just sharing with you where I have been and where I have noticed many others have gone with me that our prayer lives reveal how we feel about the, outs- about the outsider because of the, the place of priority that they hold in our prayer lives. Do they get last on the list so when one of the kids cry or it's time to go to work, do they get left off until the next episode? Our prayer lives reveal how we feel about the outsider. This selfishness with the grace of God, believing that it was supposed to be an exclusive enterprise of the Israelites and for, for it was only for Jonah and his people, severely warps, severely warps his view of the work of God because he is willing to run from God to make sure that others don't get some as if God is limited in His grace, or if He's going to run out if He shares with others. So if God doesn't have a limited amount of grace, what possibly would motivate Jonah to run from sharing it with others? The fact that he does not love them and don't believe that they qualify. Now, this is Jonah. We can talk hard to Jonah because he ain't here. But let's think about us. Is there anybody in my life whose behavior, whose movements, whose attitude, whose posture, whose demeanor, whose online conversation about the church, whose way that they've responded to me, 
Who's, who, is there anybody in my life who, who I'm getting to the place where I feel like you don't qualify for God's grace? I you to consider that for just a moment. But as you consider that, I also found something else very telling in this text. Jonah is not the only person that I've ever heard or seen in the Bible use this kind of language, for it is better for me to die than to live. It immediately catapulted my thoughts to another person who God commissioned to go and talk to Gentiles, and it was the Apostle Paul, but yet he said something similar, but it was like this. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For I am to live, if I am to live on in the flesh, that means that in my fruitful labor, it's going to be fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between two things. My desire is to depart and be with the Lord, or to be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your account. Whose account? For Gentiles' account. Now, this is interesting. Jonah's got a lot of national pride. So does Paul. The apostle Paul told us that he was Hebrew of the Hebrews, born in the tribe of Benjamite, even told us that his family circumcised him on the right day. Concerning the law, he said he was blameless, told us that he was a Pharisee, which means I not only keep the law, but I teach it, and I know it backwards and forwards. The apostle Paul had an incredible amount of pride in his Jewishness, but why didn't his pride in his Jewishness produce this barrier to want to share it with the Gentile? He is the most prolific of all people to share the gospel with the Gentiles. Why? I'll tell you why. Paul has an amazing appreciation for God's grace. He, the amazement of, of, of Paul's appreciation with grace comes from this particular vantage point. He doesn't just see himself as a preacher of the grace to tell us about it. He is also a patient of that grace. He understands that he was dead in his trespasses only to be revived by the grace of God. He recognizes himself not as a reporter just telling people about the gospel or telling people about the good news, but he was also a person who would say, and here's what it did to me. You see the difference in Paul's life? Jonah may not have seen himself as a, as a recipient of grace because he was born into the right family, born into the right tribe, born into the right role, born into the right job. He didn't see his selection as a prophet as being a work of God's grace. Of course you're saving me. I'm one of your chosen. This is one of the great challenges of growing up in the Bible Belt. May not be exactly like Jonah, but man, when you've grown up all your life in under the under the uh, Christianese, in Christian context, in Christian families, and you look out from behind your eyes and you see others who've not nearly had as clean or as good an upbringing for you, you don't feel like you need as much of God's grace as they do. That's a tendency. That's a temptation. It's a warped view of the work of God. And we have to be really careful to clean that out of our own clocks. And so, we, here's, your, here's what you're looking for if you want something to write down. <laughs> we more faithfully proclaim God's grace when we see ourselves as the product of God's grace. We more, we more faithfully proclaim God's grace when we see ourselves as the product of God's grace. But if I see myself just as the product of earnest hard work, personal bootstrap pulling, a little bit of moral adjustment, a commitment to clean eating, 
and a membership at Orange Theory. If I see myself as the product of something that I've pulled together, I never really was that bad. I mean, I always had a tendency toward humility and honesty. You can ask my parents. I would always share. Right? It's so easy to not see ourselves as the product of God's grace because we don't view our background as being that bad. Have you not noticed, have you not noticed that amongst those who have the testimonies that we're often afraid of, the person who was, you know, doing cocaine on the blades of a helicopter and fell and broke their neck and found Christ in hospice, and, then, and they're walking again, have you not noticed how we see their testimony and they are just, they won't stop talking about God's work in their lives. And then those of us who don't believe that, that we are that bad, we were like, well, you know, it was kind of a, you know, gradual process. And this, I, that's my testimony. I don't have the crazy, wild, you know, you know, testimony like this. So, dear Lord, help us that don't have the exotic testimonies grow in our appreciation for your grace through whatever crucible you have to. Because we want be, to be involved in making disciples. It's not just the jobs of, whose, of those whose lives have been jolted by catastrophic circumstances. We all are equal recipients of your grace. Verses 5 through 8. Verses 5 through 8. Uh, take a look at this. Then it says that Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city. And he made a booth for himself. And there he sat uh, in the shade um, until he should see what the Lord would, what would become of the city. And now the Lord appointed, the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that he it might be a shade over his head to save him from discomfort, uh, literally to save him from misery. That's exactly what mercy is. Based on where you're sitting, but to, where Jonah sits, he sits because of his disobedience. Where Jonah sits, he sits because of his obstinance. Where Jonah sits, he sits because of his dissatisfaction with God's ways and God's word. Where Jonah sits is fully deserving to be burned of the sun. But the Father in his mercy, God in his mercy, calls us a plant to grow up. And it says that Jonah goes through another one of his emotional swings where his circumstances are now favorable. And he says, man, and he's, he's excited. And then the Lord appoints a worm to go and chew up the plant, and then he gets angry again and has another one of his crazy swings. He's really angry with God. He's really upset. What do we learn about this? We learn that in some way, God uses the pain of external conditions to reframe internal convictions. God says, listen, throughout the book, God has been trying to help Jonah see that my grace belongs to all, but since you won't see it, through the academic dialogue, let me give you a personal situation that really drives the point home. And I believe that in all of our lives, God will use the pain of external conditions, the pinch of external conditions, to reframe internal convictions. The Apostle Paul, Exhibit A, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, you remember the conversation? He's got a thorn in his side. He asked God to remove it three times, and the Lord says, my is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient. The great apostle Paul preaching the gospel to all the Gentiles, he needed a new personal conviction on how God's grace worked. Yep, which means I do too. Regardless of how well I can define it in theological terms, I need a personal conviction of God's grace. Philippians chapter 3, verses 9 through 10, you know, when I, when I think about, when I think about 
When I think about the fact that my salvation guarantees that I'll be conformed to the image of Christ, I've often thought about that conformity on the lighter side of things. Well, God's going to, you know, make me more, have a more delightful disposition. You know, maybe you thought that meant you would be, you know, you'd like Mediterranean food. Wear more sandals. I don't know. Just be more loving. Be more kind. But listen at how Paul defines further the conformity of being made into God's image or to Christ's image. Philippians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. And I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. Here it is. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection. I'd love to know him in that just by like, you know, boom, you know, that express lane to heaven when I pass away, right? That's how I want to know the power of his resurrection. But Paul says, comma, and I may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. I don't know if I had signed up for that. But it is a part of being conformed to the image of Christ. It's also being made more conformable to his death. So did I see pain and suffering through the ends through the lens of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the work of the cross. Therefore, I can gladly and with a vein in my forehead say, God uses my pain, the pain of external conditions, to drive home internal convictions. So rather than blaming God as Jonah did, I knew you were going to save them. Rather than blaming the devil, oh, you know he's busy. Rather than blaming myself, oh, Lord, I've just done it again. Perhaps I need to do this exercise when I experience pain. Lord, what are you exposing in me? The pain of missing the plant was exposing a hypocrisy in Jonah, that he had more care and concern for plants than he did for 120,000 people. Pain, the, the pain of life, if I surrender it to the Lord, he, is he exposing something in us? And is he at the same time explaining something about himself? There was obviously a kind of grace. There was obviously a curriculum of grace that Jonah, fully and gainfully employed as a prophet, did not know until his plant was taken. Did you hear me? This is not a, he's not a, a prophet journeyman. He's not a prophet apprentice. He's a prophet vet. Stripes. You know what I mean? He's holding, you know, equip classes on how to prophesy. And he yet has to be trained to fully appreciate the convictions of what God's grace looked like. So whenever I'm going through a painful situation, ask yourself, Lord, what are you exposing in me? What are you explaining about yourself? Because in him exposing me and explaining something about himself, you know what he's doing? He's preparing me to be able to export that truth into the lives of others. Now, it feels radically frustrating to go through a painful season of life when I only think it's about me, as opposed to the Lord preparing something that needs to be exported into the lives of others. Oh, Lord, how are you going to highlight your gospel through this most crazy situation that I'm going through? How are you going to highlight the virtues of your character and your competence and, and, and the, the, the depths of your grace? How are you going to further teach me about this, not so that I can make a nice post, but so that I can actually come alongside a person who actually needs to hear about the depths of your grace. I'm often reminded that when it comes to the nature of God's Word, God's Word has always defined itself as a two-edged sword. 
And I often, I often, maybe along with you, have enjoyed that analogy through the lens, maybe like a 60-40, through the lens of two verses, 60% Ephesians chapter 6 and 40% uh, 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 Hebrews chapter 4. Here's what I'm talking about. You probably see Ephesians chapter 6 on your screen. Check this out. We get to a point where we see in Ephesians chapter 6 that we're told that in spiritual warfare, this is our offensive weapon. We're going to get it with God's Word. But in, but in, but in Hebrews chapter 4, we are told that this two-edged sword divides soul and spirit, the motive and the intentions of my heart, joints and marrow. In other words, the Word of God has its first work in me in dividing and separating and exposing, and not just this work in others. Where am I going with all of this? That the Word of God needs to be working in me just as powerfully as I want it to work on them. As we're praying for them, as we're saying, God, break down the barriers of their heart. God, break down the barriers in my heart. As I'm saying, God, open their eyes. God, open my eyes. As I'm saying, God, help them to know your grace and your great love. Lord, help me know your grace and your great love. Make sure we pray with the same fervence for our own hearts what we would pray for them. The Lord has providentially given us proximity to all of these people for a particular reason, because He believes that as we would obey Him, there's something that He has done in our lives that would represent a beautiful and unique export that He would want to graciously use to introduce himself to them. The Word needs to be working in me just as powerfully as I want it to work on them. Here we go, uh, the final stretch. In verses 9 through 11, listen to these words. It says in uh, 9-11, but God, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Whenever God asks a question, it's never for discovery, it's always for display. It's never for discovery. It's always for display. He's showing us something about ourselves. He already has the answers to the test, already knows the information. He's waiting for us to catch up, right? This is the second time he says, is it good for you to be angry? The obvious answer is no, but now the next thing is, well, no, but why? When God asks questions, it's never for discovery of his own. It's always for display for us. He says, do you do well to be angry? And the Lord said, you pity the plant which you did not labor. Here is one of the most beautiful, practical illustrations of grace. You pity the plant for which you did not labor. We can't work for our salvation. You did not make it. We don't create the opportunity. You did make it to grow. Which came into being in a night and which perished at a night. Should, should I not then pity Nineveh? So here it is. If he pities a plant, why can't I pity people? And God is calling, God is calling Jonah not to give him permission to pity Nineveh, but that he would call up and also pity Nineveh. So that you don't just pity plants. When I look at verses 9 and 11, I see this very simply, uh, just an illustration of God's sovereignty. God uses the whole planet to point people to gospel truth. If you don't believe it, listen to the words of the psalmist in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor is there, are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And in them he has set a tent for the sun. This is talking about what the world does. This is the Lord sovereignly using the whole world and the things that are made at his disposal. But not just for a general display. Look at this in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. For I am not ashamed of the 
gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, and it, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. But here's the good part. Listen to this, how God uses the whole creation at his disposal to drive home gospel truth. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, meaning that the truth is readily there and it gets suppressed. Well, where did this truth, obvious truth, come from? For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for the invisible attributes, namely the eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and in the things that he has made so that they are without excuse. Every one of the names of the people over there are without excuse, just like we were. God is working. There is a work of grace even within the way that he wields the physical creation. God uses the planet to drive people toward gospel truth. If you don't believe it, look at all of the, the sovereign utilizations of just things within the planet, within the creation that you see throughout the story of Jonah in all four chapters. You think about the storm. The storm didn't just, it wasn't just a meteorological event that affected the guys on the boat to go get Jonah. Notice that both the care and correction of God was on full display in the fact that he went to go get Jonah so that he could send caring words of grace to the Ninevites. But also notice that on that same journey where that storm was smashing the boat, that the shipmates of Jonah, who did not know the one true and living God, worshipped him after they saw this sovereign display of his power. God was both caring for the folks on the boat, caring for the people at Nineveh, and he was at the same time correcting the hearts of those who had the wrong God and also correcting his own servant, Jonah, who didn't have the right heart. God is always in the business of doing more than one thing at a time. Think about the nature of the fish. The fish that was sent could have been really the end of the story. It could have been a great piece on National Geographic about how fish chew up and attack people and leave them out in the sea. But no, the Lord sent a fish that would, a situation that would swallow Jonah, care for him in the belly that he would not be totally consumed, and then transport him through that same crisis to take him exactly where he wanted him to be. God was both caring for Jonah in the belly of the whale and correcting him. God was caring for Jonah and correcting him when he sent the plant. The Bible says it wasn't a gimmick, it wasn't a game, it wasn't a prank, that, that God caused and appointed the plant to grow up so that his servant Jonah would be shielded from the sun and he would be well. And Jonah's heart was indeed lifted. The Lord brought it into his life to care for him and then he took it away to correct him to show him how hypocritical his heart was. God can do this. He does it through the worm who he appointed to go and eat up the plant. But one of the greatest simultaneous demonstrations of God's care and correction is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, when you look up at the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, you are 100% seeing the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God and the loving kindness of God who sent his only son. But at the same time that you're seeing great care, you're also seeing God shoulder his wrath and correction squarely on the person of Jesus. Did you see that? He is showing care and shouldering the correction of God. Any person who clearly hears the gospel cannot escape both of those notes. It is God not only caring for me, but also correcting me because he reminds me that this is how much he loves me. But oh, by the way, that should be you up there. The gospel is the greatest message of care and correction of all time. 
The, the message of care and correction, it, it is one of both pity and punishment. When we see Jesus pitifully taken, betrayed by his friends, we see God having pity on his people, but at the same time, we see God squarely pointing out that there is punishment on deck if there is no repentance. The gospel is the ultimate paradigm of both care and correction. God can use any and everything at his disposal, and he does. We see in the gospel the simultaneous ugliness of sin and yet the beauty of salvation in the exact same moment. How much more would the Lord like to use painful moments and crises in the lives of those people and in the lives of these people and in the life of this person? Don't waste your suffering. Don't waste your pain. Ask the Lord, what are you saying about yourself and what are you exposing in me? And how are we supposed to use this to win more folks to you? Now I understand why the Apostle Paul says, I'll, I'll glory in my infirmities. Because as I get more deeply acquainted with your grace, I'm all the more equipped to, to share it with other people. So today, as we think about those anywhere in the periphery of our lives. Their names may or may not be up there. But, but, but I hope that there would be just a reversal in the way that we pray. Man, if you're a person that already prays deeply, heartily, and intentionally for the outsider, I praise God for you. I praise God for you. As our prayer team is kind of getting in position, I want to invite those of us who hadn't got there yet. If you are a person who says, Lord, I want to increase my appreciation for your grace. I read about it. I've downloaded, I've kindled the most recent scholarly works on the depths of your grace, its tenets and its fine print, its ultimate theological components. But Lord God, I'm looking for an increase of appreciation that can only be borne out in the, in the work that you're doing in my own life. If that's where you are, would you maybe just let one of the members of the prayer team just kind of pray with you? If you're a person who, who's sitting here and you says, I, I, I'm appreciating God's grace, I just never knew it like this, and I want to know it. I, I don't think I have a relationship with him. I, I grew up listening to the great stories of Jonah and other stories of God's love, but I didn't recognize that the, the stories of God's love was also laden with a demonstration of his law that says that, that if I don't respond well to his love, faithfully and in faith to his love, if I take his love for granted, that there's a law that I have to deal with, that could cause me eternal separation from God. Man, if you're a person and you do not know Jesus, you've ignored his grace. This, this is your opportunity too. Would you just kind of hang out with a member of our prayer team, let them talk to you about the great work of His grace. Perhaps none of these necessarily match uh, where you're at, but as a point of application for our um, Who's Your One board, if you've been coming all the weeks and you, just, you, you haven't put a name up there yet, there's a person that you you, you're, you're just now thinking about it. You want to put their name there? This is your opportunity. Um, Aaron's going to just kind of pray, play something softly for us for a couple of minutes, give you an opportunity to be prayed for, give you an opportunity to go up and kind of pin the name of a person who, whose salvation you're praying for. If you've already got a name up there and you've had a gospel conversation, would you just kind of put a circle around that name? And maybe if there's a, if there's a, a, a person there who you have just had great apprehension for, just apprehend, Lord, I just, I cannot muster the courage to comfortably go and share my faith. Man, would you just, your action item, would you either pray where you are or just be prayed for or pray with some folks that are there? We're going to give you a few moments to do that, and then I'm going to come back and uh, close us out 
uh, with just some prayer for the folks uh, on that board. Amen. Let's do that. As folks are uh, continuing to to come and um, write names or make make notations or, or be prayed for, I want to pray for both us and them at the same time. If you join me in that. Father, in the name of Jesus, I remember your your servant Thomas who said, help my unbelief. Lord God, I'm asking that you would help my apprehension. Help my appreciation. Lord God, open my eyes in this very local way. Help open our eyes, oh God, and just the the things that are going around me. Make it so clear to me like never before, so vivid the appreciation of your grace. If there, if there be any great emotional swing to be had in my life, oh God, in our lives, would you please raise our appreciation for your grace in the unique way that, that you know that we are wired? And in it, Lord God, let my apprehension for sharing my faith dissipate. Lord God, I pray for the outsider. I pray for the person that does not know you. I pray for the initials and the names represented on that board. I pray for the people whose names should be up there, but they're in our social circle, and we don't even know that we're going to meet them yet, or we haven't thought about them because we assumed that they were saved. Lord God, I pray for those folks, that your grace is invading their lives, that you're literally using their physical surroundings, whether it be storms or plants or worms. Lord God, you're the sovereign God. You use whatever is at your disposal to invade their lives with the truth that they need you and to prepare their lives to hear the good news of Jesus Christ having died on the cross for their sins. And Lord God, as you are preparing them, Lord God, would you embolden and send us to them? Lord God, that we wouldn't just wait for them to pick up the phone and say, you won't believe what happened to me today. I'm ready to hear about the gospel. Lord God, would we press in? Would you give us that boldness to press in? Lord God, I pray that you would leverage the pandemic, Lord God, for your good, to, to, to cause people to see, Lord God. I pray that the, through the pandemic, oh God, that you would, you would draw people to see their need for something greater than any human entity can provide. I pray, oh God, for the concerning the political divisiveness in our nation, oh God. I pray that through the pinch, through the ruptured family relationships, through the great disappointments that some have felt to find out that a loved one or another person didn't vote the way they thought they should or side with the way that they should. I pray, oh God, through the pinch of politics that you would cause hearts to be, Lord God, convicted of their need for grace, that there is a, a Savior and a solution that no legislation can provide. I pray, oh God, that you would leverage, use like you did the worm, use like you did the plant, use like you did the storm, use whatever it is in our lives to highlight our deep, desperate need for you. And Lord God, let the same work that's happening in the life of the outsider be underscored in ours so that we might not just have new and greatly exposited truths but that you would export these incredible ideas out of our lives into the lives of others who you've already given us relationship capital. Send us, Lord God, in the name of your Holy Son, Jesus Christ, just to be obedient and watch you work. This we pray in the matchless and holy name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.